0: So today we are going to talk about the doctrine of prayer and we're going to begin by looking at matthew 6 and how jesus taught us to pray but first let me pray and then we will dive in heavenly father we thank you that you have given us so many verses on prayer in your word and we thank you that jesus himself taught us how to pray lord i pray that as we review the Lord's Prayer, this would give us a foundation to help us assess and understand the other verses of prayer in the Bible, to realize that this is Jesus teaching us how to pray. And so, Lord, help us to have clarity of thought, help us to have understanding, and help us to have teachable hearts as we talk about prayer today. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Matthew 6, verse 5, it starts with How are we to pray? And Jesus is speaking here, and this is what he says. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. So He starts with showing where we should pray, that we should pray in a private place. It's us and God. And that he wants us to think about what we are going to pray. We're not just going to spout out anything. It's not a verbal process session, but he wants us to have an intentional, thought-out conversation with him. So what do we pray? And this is where Jesus gave us the model of the Lord's prayer. And we're going to read it, and then I'm just going to vaguely go over each step with you so that we can learn principles. And I think one of the most important things to realize, especially if you're raised in some church where there was the tradition of reciting the Lord's Prayer, that it is not these exact words that make it special, but there are principles in it to help us know what to pray and how to pray. So let's look through it together and just I will read it and then I will explain some main principles from it. In Matthew 6, 9, it says, Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not bring us into temptation but deliver us for from the evil one for if you forgive others their offenses your heavenly father will forgive you but if you don't forgive others your father will not forgive your offenses now there are other examples of this prayer in other gospels but for this one let's start with jesus was asking us to pray to the father and we're going to talk later that we can pray to Jesus. We can pray to the Holy Spirit. But the point of, of labeling our prayer, whether it's Heavenly Father or Oh Holy Spirit or, or Dear Jesus, right, that we are remembering there is a position in heaven. God the Father is there and he is in control and he is sovereign. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God where he has accomplished his work for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And so we start with our mind on he is in control and he is all-powerful and this gives us confidence in god as we pray not confidence in what we pray confidence in god as we pray and then we say hallowed be your name or your name be honored as holy and this is us beginning to start by worshiping God for who he is. We learned about God's attributes a few weeks ago. And as we pray through who God is and his attributes, this increases our trust in him, whether our prayers are answered or not. So we are remembering God is control and God is sovereign. We are acknowledging his attributes and this increases our trust in him as we pray. And then our first prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done. We are praying for God's plan for the world, not just our little life, but God's plan for everybody. And that is something we cannot understand, right? And we are going to submit to him because we want to see his power, his position, and his presence Evident on earth. I'll say that again. We want to see his power, his position, and his presence evident on earth. God, make your name great. If you read the Psalms, there's so many times he just says, Have yourself be glorified. Reveal yourself to your enemies, right? Like, we want him to be known. Your kingdom come. And then we ask for today. Give us today our daily bread. We cannot survive without certain sustenances, right? And so we are allowed to ask God for what we need, and we are trusting him for today. I think so often our prayers are full of worry, but the Bible says do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Focus on today. Pray for today. Trust him today for what you need. He is your provider, your protector, and your sustainer. And then it says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. And this is a time of confession that in our prayer, we should be always searching our hearts for any sin and asking for forgiveness. But he mentions multiple times. That's why I even read those last two verses of Matthew 6, where he says, hey, if you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. That we need to be forgiving people if we want God to engage with us in our prayers. And this is so, so crucial. And then the last thing he says is lead us not into temptation, right? But deliver us from evil. And so this is where we need to ask for victory over sin. Empower me with your spirit. Help me to live this this day in living out the fruit of your spirit. Lord, I'm tempted in this. Help me to keep my mouth shut, whether it's for gossip or for food, (laughs) right? Or whatever it is, you know, (laughs) keep me away from evil. This is a holistic prayer. It honors God, it increases our trust, it builds our worship. We are allowed to share our needs. We are allowed to become right with him again with forgiveness. And we are allowed to ask for help because we're still in the process of our sanctification, right? We want to keep this prayer, this model in our mind as we look at these other verses and see how do those fit in with how Jesus taught us to pray? Because so often we just pluck different verses about prayer out, out of their context, and sometimes we just even put them all together. And remember, systematic theology is taking verses throughout a topic, through the whole Bible and understanding them. But again, we have to do that in context and we have to do it in light of the truth of what other scripture says. So what we learn about prayer cannot contradict what we learn about God or about faith or about who's in control. So those are things we want to keep in mind as we continue to study prayer today. So what is the doctrine of prayer? What what does that mean? Well, the doctrine of prayer is personal communication from us to God. Prayer is specifically us talking to God. God mainly communicates to us through his word, though in prayer times you might think you hear the still soft voice of God and he might be telling you to do something. The spirit might be prodding you to do something. And still yet, if you feel like there's this thought that comes to you that's from God, you need to determine, does that still fit with scripture? Because still the ultimate authority is the scripture, not what you think you hear from God. So why do we pray? What are the reasons for prayer? Really God wants to stay involved with us through prayer this is the relational aspect we have with god it's how we personally connect with him about anything and everything there is not something you cannot talk to god about he wants it to be fellowship we can communicate our requests confess our sin give adoration praise and thanksgiving and our love for god when we pray to him it increases our relationship And it deepens our relationship with him. I want you to think of this. If God loves us and even gave his son to die for us, how can we ever think he doesn't want to hear from us? Some of us might think, why would he want to hear from me? Why would my my requests be important enough for him to even listen to? But God longs for us to take the time to say he's a priority in our life to talk to. And everything that's happening in our life. So it's a way to enjoy his presence when we're in prayer. We can share our emotions with God. We can share our requests, our concerns, ask for guidance. And I think sometimes people wonder, is there anything I shouldn't talk to God about? Should I not mention I'm afraid or I'm worried or I have questions or doubts or I'm dealing with some anger or confusion? But that is the best time to run to him because he wants to help guide us and direct us, even with our emotions, even with our questions, even with our doubts. So we want to run to God with those things, not away. So we're going to focus on specific passages throughout our time. And we're going to start with 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And that says to pray without ceasing. And that can sometimes be confusing. Does that mean I'm supposed to be this, like a monk and just continually pray? Did you know that Martin Luther, he would pray for two hours every morning. He said, anything less, I wouldn't be ready for the day. But what does pray without ceasing mean? It really means to dialogue with God throughout your day. Be aware that He's there. As you walk into a situation, like I prayed on the way here, God, guide me in what I'm gonna communicate. Help me to engage with the women in a way that I'm supposed to, right? So I'm engaging as I go from place to place. I'm gonna have a conversation. Guide me in this conversation that I'm gonna have with this person. Or it could be an emotion. I'm feeling something right now, God, and I need your help to know how to deal with this emotion. And so it's a throughout the day conversation, not just a set aside time to pray, which is also highly valuable. But as we pray and depend on him, that's when our relationship grows in trust. And when we have trust, we will have peace. And when you have peace, you're going to have joy. So the more you pray, the more trust is built, the more peace you're going to have, no matter what the circumstance is, and you can have joy in the Lord because you've been having an intimate conversation with Him. You see how that flows? It flows from prayer. So do you ever wonder if God really wants to hear from you? If so, why do you believe that and what can you do to push past that lie? God wants us to pray so that our dependence on Him increases. Prayer is showing dependence on God. This shows we trust Him, and prayer itself shows we have faith. Okay? The fact we are going to Him and asking does reveal that we have faith, our trust and faith actually increase as we pray because we start to see him moving in our life. So the more you pray, the more your trust and faith will increase because you're going to see God move in your life one way or another. And not that maybe every single prayer is answered, but you will still increase in faith. So the next verse we're going to look at is how to understand Matthew 21, verse 22. And it says this, whatever you ask in prayer, You will receive if you have faith. Does this mean if you have enough faith that someone will come to Christ, your children will come to Christ, right? Or cancer will be healed or that thing that's hard to overcome will never be a temptation anymore on this side of heaven. I mean, how are we supposed to understand this verse correctly? If we isolate this verse, We could start to bad a wrong theology and it could be faith shattering because some people think, oh, my prayer wasn't answered because I didn't have enough faith. When you think of that theologically, what's wrong with that statement? My prayer was not answered because I didn't have enough faith. It says he distributes faith as much as he determines on each person. So what's weird is someone in this room might have more faith than another. Does that mean all their prayers are going to be answered and yours won't be? <laughs> no. God gives us faith. It also says God can increase our faith. But what we see is it is him doing that, not us. So it would be unfair if we said, oh, look, you don't have enough faith. You didn't pray enough in faith. And so your prayer was not answered because that puts the burden on you that it's you that you're, the reason the prayer was not answered. You see that? And it puts the burden on you. Figure out how to get more faith which is totally unbiblical. Do you see how it could be misconstrued? Okay, so we don't want to isolate that because then someone's entire faith could be shattered when they see that was not answered. I really, really wanted that to be answered. I must not have had enough faith. So therefore, I'm just going to walk away from the faith. Do you see that? So this is very, very dangerous. We need to consider the whole counsel of God when we think this. And not isolate verses. So what if God says no, right? Does that mean it's because of our lack of faith? No. Several times in scripture, God did not do as someone asked. And it's because he's God and he can see things that we cannot see. Here's an example. King David, he pleaded with the Lord to save the life of his and Bathsheba's infant son. David fasted and he prayed for days, but on the seventh day, the child died. And God said, no, he does not get to keep that child. David responded in a way that is a model for all of us. He accepted that what God had done was right and good. And he went into the house of the Lord and he chose by faith, to worship God, even though God chose to take his son. He had hope for a different outcome, but God is God, and he has the right to make life and death decisions. In his grief, David did not become bitter with the Lord. We are allowed to grieve when the answer is no. We can grieve and still honor God. But he did not allow his grief to become bitterness or turn away from the Lord. That son that died was not more important than his God. And sometimes we misconstrue. And that thing we want so bad, even if it seems so good, we make it more important than trusting God. So David's response to God's no was deeper worship, deeper surrender, even in his heartache. A no can mean heartache, but it can also mean a time of deeper worship and surrender. Another person was Paul. Paul was plagued with what they call the thorn in the flesh. We're not quite sure what that is. Different theologians have different ideas. Was this a certain sin? He can't overcome some kind of weakness but it was really bugging him and it said that a messenger of satan was tormenting me i mean this it's just like major spiritual warfare it is not going the way away i don't know how many times he said in the name of jesus but somehow jesus is choosing to not take this away he pleaded with the lord three times on separate occasions to take this thorn from him now nowhere does it say oh paul If you kept praying more than three times, the thorn of the flesh would have gone away. Oh, Paul, if you had more faith in God, the thorn of the flesh would have gone away. We don't see that in 2 Corinthians, okay? In the trial where God said no, Paul learned to appropriate greater measures of God's grace. God's grace, what did he say, is sufficient for me. And I want to still live for God's glory through this difficulty. And so his response to God's no was to glory in his weakness. I am not perfect. I am still a sinner. I am still wrestling with things in this life. And God has chosen to not take this away. Maybe he needed that thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. We don't know. But instead of giving up in frustration or deciding God didn't care, Paul said it this way. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, he said, I'm going to delight in my weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's no enabled him to trust God in his weaknesses. So God will often say no to things that we yearn to see happen. And those with an immature faith, which means they don't understand God, and so they don't know how to put their trust in God, sometimes use as an excuse to abandon him altogether. How many times have you heard this? But God didn't heal my baby. But God didn't save my marriage. But God didn't give me that job that I needed. And now my family is struggling, right? So if our view is that God is obligated to grant our requests, then we will be dismayed when God does not perform that's what it is. It's it's asking God to perform. Give me this. Then I will acknowledge your God. Then I will know you are God. Then I will know that you love me or care for me. So we choose whether to allow the no from God to either shatter our faith or build up our faith. A no can build up our faith because God can teach us to endure even when we don't know why. We have to endure even when we don't know why. It's often in seasons when God says no, we are forced to pursue God more earnestly because it's not an answered prayer. God's no can shatter that tiny box in which we've tried to keep him in. But you were supposed to do this, God. I obeyed you, so why is this happening to me? Why, I've been trying to follow your ways, but this is happening. Why? 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 He says, no, when it's part of his grander plan, because we don't see that. He says, no, when our lack of faith indicates we don't truly believe he's who he says he is. He says, no, when our requests are rooted in selfishness, even if we don't realize they're actually selfish or when a yes could actually harm us. We don't know if it'll harm us or not. He says, no, when like Paul, we must learn that his grace is sufficient. Maybe it's a lesson we need to learn. The biblical examples of servants of God who experience God's no help us to learn the right response because we will get no's in life. Next, prayer allows us to be a part of God's plan and be involved in activities that have eternal significance. In prayer, you are affecting eternity, not just the temporal, you're affecting the eternal. So, what things are eternal? What can you pray? that's eternal. And so have you ever thought about praying about more eternal things than just temporal? If you were to think about your prayer life, how much of it is temporal on today or the worries of today or the worries of this earth and not the eternal? And how much more joy might you have if you start focusing on the eternal things versus the temporal? So that's something to think about. So let's talk about effectiveness of prayer. How do we know if our prayer will be effective? Well, First of all, Jesus is the reason our prayers are effective, okay? We don't make our prayers effective. There's going to be a few things to help us figure out how to pray better, but Jesus is the reason our prayers are effective because he is our mediator, okay? And something interesting to think about with Jesus is he does not promise to hear or answer the prayer of unbelievers except for when they come to him with a repentant heart, okay? So... A non-believer's prayer is not going to be heard by God unless they've already repented and are in a right relationship with him. Okay? And even with us, that's why we are to confess our sins because when we're not in a right relationship with God, it's more difficult. But this is why we pray in Jesus' name, which would connect with a Christian versus a non-Christian because Christ is only the mediator for the saved. Okay? Not the unsaved. And With Christ as our mediator, we can actually enter into heaven itself, theoretically, right? Where Christ has gone to appear in the presence of God. And that's Hebrews 9, 24. And Jesus said this, John 15, 16, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. So first of all, it's us acknowledging Jesus has the authority, the power, and he's in the presence of God, and he's mediating for us. So Jesus is, is showing us, hey, pray in my name. Okay, this is why we know we can also pray to Jesus. But what does that mean? Again, we can pull that out and say, oh, I can ask for anything, and Jesus is going to do it. So again, we're making Jesus a genie. So to come in the name of someone, this is what this means. It means that the other person has authorized us to come on his authority, not on our own. And so in the ancient world the name of a person represented that person himself and all of their character so this is what you want to think of you are praying not just jesus as a person and his authority but you're praying about his character who is his character he is just and he is merciful he is loving but he is the one that's going to come back and bring wrath on this earth so you're when you say you're praying in jesus's name you're praying in all of Jesus' character, so that's going to again put in perspective what you're praying for. Do you see that? Like we don't just say, "In Jesus' name, I want to get married." In Jesus' name, I want to have kids. In Jesus' name, I want this. It's no, it's in your character. So it's again, you're thinking about it in light of who He is and what He would want the outcome to be. Does that make sense that's what in jesus's name mean we don't just tag it on like a power line at the end of our prayer oh that's our good power line you know it's not just praying his authority but in a way that is consistent with his character to pray jesus's name is to is close to the idea of praying according to his will which we we are keeping to bring up we need to pray according to his will okay So let's look at a few more verses that could be easily misunderstood. One could be Luke 11, 9 through 10. And it says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. So when can we trust for sure that this verse would be true? When can someone ask, seek, and knock? And we for sure know that the door will be open. So this is the non-believer asking, seeking, knocking, and Jesus is going to open his door. For those of you that may have heard the story of the girl who thought she was a vampire that I ministered to, I had shared the gospel with her. And she did not say yes to Jesus. And she asked me to drive her home. And she was in the back of the car. And she started eerily knocking on the back window. And I thought, for sure this woman is on drugs, right? But as she constantly knocked on the back window, I said to her, Christy, why are you knocking on the window? And she said, something is knocking at my heart. And I told her Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door knock. You know, if anyone comes in, you're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking. I will come in. I will dine with him. And she said, Okay, I want Jesus in my life. And so we know that this is a verse that can give us confidence that someone that asks, seeks, and knocks will come to Christ. But also, it says at the end of that, it says, Who that has a child would give them a bad gift, right? Are you going to give? And it says, If you were to ask for the Holy Spirit, He's going to give it to you. So I love that as well for the believer, because when we ask, seek, and knock for the Holy Spirit to empower us and change our life, he's going to do that. So for the non-believer, it can be salvation. For the believer, it's the Holy Spirit that's already inside of us, but saying, empower me. Let me live this life the way you want me to live. But if we assume that ask And you will receive means ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. Then we have turned the Lord kind of into a genie who serves our every whim. And this is the problem that we might hear in what's called prosperity gospel or word of faith teachings. And I'm going to explain that more in a few minutes. But with this and other verses, we must examine again the context, okay? Jesus goes on to say that God will not fail to give his children good things. So now he's talking about those in the body of Christ. And this is the one condition about asking and receiving. He says, what we ask for must be good in God's estimation. God has to determine that this is what is best for you and for the whole situation in order for him to grant you what you're asking and seeking. If it's not salvation, let's say it's something else in context of this verse, because he will not give us bad or injurious things, right? No matter how much we clamor for them or want them. And the best gift he has given us is the Holy Spirit. And he will continue and empower us with the Spirit when we ask. And that's in Luke eleven thirteen. So there's a twofold purpose to prayer that we see here, okay? It's to increase our understanding of what does God think is good, even if it doesn't seem good to us. Prayer reveals what... God's calls good, and it's to cultivate in us a desire to want to pray for what is good, according to God. God, I want to pray for your goodness. I want to pray, again, it's God's will. I want to pray for what you want, because I don't know what is ultimately good. So Jesus went on in this verse, and he said, seek and you will find. Okay, he says that in Matthew 7, 7, seek and you will find. And so what as a believer should we be seeking the same thing as the non-believer not our salvation but God himself we should be continually seeking God but I think sometimes we think seeking is I'm seeking a job I'm seeking a new direction in life I'm seeking for this person or whatever right but Ultimately, every time we talk about seeking in the Bible, it's seeking after God. So look at this. It says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek in Psalm 27, 8. Another Psalm, Psalm 34, 10 says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or Psalm 105, 4 says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Do you care more about God's presence or that thing you're praying for? Because even in a terminally ill situation where it seems hopeless, ultimately we seek his presence. We will be in his presence one way or the other. We need to seek his presence. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Psalm 119.2. God is not hiding from his children. His heart's desire is for us to persistently and passionately look for him all around us. And when we do, he promises he'll be found. That's the promise. Ask, seek, knock, and you will find me. Seeking is a matter of paying attention with an engaged mind. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness. This is the things we should be seeking before any other requests we present to him. Seeking God's kingdom means putting God's plan before our own. Seeking God's righteousness means setting a priority that we're pursuing holiness and desiring to be sanctified. So we have another condition though to the promise of ask and receive. John 14, 14 says this, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So that's similar to that other verse, right? Jesus does not promise his disciples anything and everything they want. Rather, he's instructing them to ask in my name. To pray in Jesus's name is praying on his authority and involves praying according to his will. For the will of God is what Jesus always did, right? Jesus always said, according to your will, Lord, according to your will, Father. And 1 John 5.14 says this, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, I think that verse is the verse we hold on to with prayer. This is the ultimate verse. 1 John 5, 14. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we might not always know what his will is. I think that is a safer verse to hang on to than just, did I pray in faith enough? Did I pray in faith enough? Did I pray it right? Did I I forget to pray in Jesus' name? This verse says, it's your will, not my will, right? It displays surrender. Our requests must be congruent with the will of God. Now, James 4, 2 says this. This is interesting. You do not have because you do not ask. What might we not have because we haven't asked? Is there something you're afraid to ask God for? Is there something you need to take the time and ask? Maybe it's taking time to pray for the salvation of others or to pray for a soft heart for yourself or someone else or to overcome a sin in your life. You do not have because you do not ask. You know, for my husband and I, we are in ministry. And so our whole, all our finances are raised by individuals and churches. And we have to ask God, show us who to talk to. Show us who to share our ministry with, right? We, we can't just assume, oh, God's just going to provide right? And I just going to keep going on. My, no, I have to still be a part of. Who do you want to invite to be a part of our ministry, God? Show us. So I need to ask God for him to provide. The money doesn't just fall into our ministry account for us every month, right? Who, who do we, we want to engage with? The biblical instruction concerning prayer is that we pray for the good things we truly need. So what do you truly need? That's what we pray for. According to the will of God, In the authority of Jesus, we can persistently pray, unselfishly pray, and we pray in faith. Okay, that's kind of the heart of prayer. Biblical instruction with prayer says this, I'll say it again. We pray for the good things we truly need, according to the will of God, in the authority of Jesus Christ, persistently, unselfishly, and in faith. That kind of encompasses a lot of the verses on prayer. Now, Jesus did emphasize faith, though. He said, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Again, sounds like a blanket statement promise, right? There are a lot of these in the Bible, which could be very interesting. And that's why we're going to talk about the faith movement in a second. (laughs) Those who truly believe God will witness amazing things. Let me tell you, as a missionary, you know, and I've been all over the world, and I've shared Jesus with many people. And honestly, not as many people come to Christ as you might think for me being a missionary. I actually don't think I have the gift of evangelism, even though I've written a book on it, right? Even though I train people on it. But if I keep praying and I keep taking steps of faith and sharing with people, let me tell you, more people are going to come to Christ than if I didn't pray and take steps of faith. Isn't that true? I mean, uh, if you're not going to pray and you're not going to take steps of faith, no one's going to come to Christ, right? And so you start. I started to take little steps of faith and I started to pray and then these amazing God stories started happening. I started to see crazy things happen with people and it wasn't because of my faith. It was because I prayed and took a little step and I prayed and I took a little step and then all of a sudden, I saw these crazy stories of people coming to Christ. And so... These are just little steps of faith we take, but they are for kingdom purposes. Let's talk about what is the word of faith movement. I want to clarify, I would say this is an unbiblical movement, but it's not a denomination and it does not have a formal organization or hierarchy. So it's more like a theology that some people have created and embraced, but it's not like, oh, here's the churches that clearly do it okay? But I can tell you people that do it. This movement is influenced by high-profile pastors and teachers. One is Kenneth Hagen, one's Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Paul and Jan Crouch, Fred Price, Joseph Prince. These are some names. They're going to be all in my notes. I would be careful of listening to their motivational messages because they would hold on to more word of faith teaching. So what is that behind the scenes? They're not going to Maybe teach their theology from up front because most are seeker-friendly churches, right? Or teachings. But here's the heart of the Word of Faith movement. It's the belief in what is called force of faith. Okay, that's the term. you got to have force in your faith. Okay, and we're seeing that already from what we talked about with faith being not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, right? So it is believing words can be used... To manipulate the faith force and thus actually create what they believe scripture promises so if I have enough faith I will be healthy if I have enough faith I will get wealth if I have enough faith this is gonna happen so laws supposedly governing this faith force are operating independently of God's sovereignty my faith force is separate from God's sovereignty. Do you see a problem with that? There's a problem with that because God is sovereign over everything, right? And so if me having enough faith does not have to do with God's sovereign will, then here's what's happening. God has to be subject to our faith. If my faith is strong enough, if I'm forceful enough, God has to submit to my strong faith and obey. That's a problem. What this is doing is it's kind of creating idolatry because it's turning our faith kind of into a God. My faith is my God, not my God is my faith. Okay, you see that? So let me explain this more. In their view, illness, sin, and failure are the result of your lack of faith. You are sick because you don't have enough faith. You're stuck in that sin because you don't have enough faith. Okay, so they're, they're relating these things in our life to a lack of faith. And the remedy is confession. Okay, claiming God's promises for oneself into existence. I'm going to claim this verse as true. I'm going to claim this verse for myself. So it's a lot of the, they, the short way of saying it, name it and claim it, right? This is a promise. I'm going to claim, but a lot of times the verses are taken out of context. What's a famous one? Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and har- not to harm you, plans to give you a future and hope. Totally taken out of context. I'm going to claim that. I'm going to have this great future and I'm going to have this great hope. And they take it out of context. Okay? So, the Word of Faith movement exalts man to a God status and reduces God to a man status. And so, it's a false representation of what Christianity is. Our hope is in the Lord, not our words. Our hope is in God. Not even our faith and how much faith we have. Psalms 33, 20 through 22 says that, that our hope is in the Lord. Our faith comes from God in the first place. Two verses show you that. Ephesians 2, 8 and Hebrews 12, 2. It's about our faith comes from God. And it's not something we create for ourselves. So we want to be wary of some of this teaching. As the name Word of Faith implies, this movement teaches that faith is a matter of what we say more than who we trust or what truths we embrace and affirm in our hearts. So here's another term that could be used in word of faith or prosperity gospel teachers. They're gonna say a positive confession. You might have heard this term before. What is a positive confession? So this refers to the teaching that words themselves have creative power. My words myself can heal me. My words myself can make me stronger, right? What you say, prosperity teachers claim, determines everything that happens to you. So what I say is what's gonna happen to me. Holly, you're going to lose 10 pounds in the next two months <laughs> <laughs> because I'm eating healthy and I'm working out. No matter how much I want to believe that and I'm trying to stick to faithfulness in things, I can't just keep saying that and it's going to come true it might that'd be wonderful if i could lose another 10 pounds in two months it's reasonable it should be able to work out but it might not right but they're saying this positive confession determines everything that happens to you so your confessions especially the favors you demand from god must all be stated positively and without wavering you are going to heal this person you are going to find them a husband you are going to get help them have a baby one day and get pregnant And what we think is, is we're praying by faith, but it's like we're demanding a false hope that we don't know is true in the realm of God's sovereignty. Do you see that? You can't claim those things. There's not a promise we'll all get married. There's not a promise that we'll all get pregnant. There's not a promise that we'll all get healed. There's just not. Doesn't mean we cannot pray, God, we would love for this person to be healed and that they could have more impact on this earth. Lord, we would love for this individual to be able to find a spouse and get married and serve you together. Lord, we would love for this couple to be able to start having a family. We can pray for those things. We can share our heart for those things, but we can't claim them and say they're gonna happen. Oh God, but you said we were meant to be husband and wife and that we would be fruitful and multiply. So we're gonna claim that verse in Genesis three that they are gonna have a family because their calling is to be fruitful and multiply. You just can't do that. I think we have to remember we live in a fallen world and jesus said you are going to suffer like i suffered i mean he had abandonment he had persecution nobody respected him he was not seen as amazing right but yet so many of our prayers are relieve this pain fix this friendship which is not wrong we can pray that but there's so many verses of we need we're going to be in his suffering like he's, and so we just have to say, Lord, I might be suffering until I get to heaven. Or my spouse might be suffering until they get to heaven. or We don't know, you know. But unfortunately, that's part of the holistic word of God, too. You know, when we say waiting, God, why aren't you coming now? Lord Jesus, there's enough war. There's enough earthquakes killing people. Come, Lord Jesus. We are allowed to pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Right? And we won't understand why. Why is he waiting? He is waiting because there are still people yet to be saved. And if he comes now, they will not be saved and they will have eternity in hell. So some people are dying. Thousands and thousands of people are dying in earthquakes and this war. And we say, why aren't you coming now to save us? Because there are still yet people to be spiritually saved. So it's bigger picture. But we can still pray, come Lord Jesus, come. But he knows when the last person is going to be saved before Jesus returns. So here's the way to think about not claiming certain things. The verse that says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, right? That confidence. We will spend a year there. We will carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So it's far from speaking things into existence in the future, right? We don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And he's pretty much saying, don't try to do that, okay? We briefly mentioned this at the beginning, but who should we pray to in the Trinity? And it's interesting because Jesus modeled a prayer where he said, our Father. So there are some people that think, well, you should only pray to God the Father because Jesus said, <laughs> right? Well, Jesus is not going to model it, And then this is how you pray to me. And then one day the Holy Spirit will come. And this is how you will pray to the Holy Spirit. Jesus was modeling how he prays as he was a human on earth, okay? So I want you to see it this way. Stephen, who was the first martyr, the first person killed for his faith, he prayed while he was being stoned for Jesus to receive his spirit as he was dying. Acts 7, 59. So Stephen prayed to Jesus in his dying breath. That's our first example of someone praying to Jesus after Jesus ascended. Now, there are no direct prayers to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. To be fair, there are no direct prayers to the Holy Spirit. But think about this, okay? To say we can't pray to the Holy Spirit is pretty much saying we can't talk to him or relate to him personally. And he's the part of God that's inside of us to help sanctify us and change us. He's called our healer and our comforter. So it would not make sense to not have some kind of fellowship, which means communication with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that make sense? When you think about his role in the Trinity and you think about Romans 8, 26, it says, when we don't know what to pray, the spirit himself intercedes for us according to what? The will of God. And then Jude does allude to this. He says that we should be praying in the Holy Spirit. So maybe that doesn't mean praying to the Holy Spirit, but definitely Holy Spirit, help me to know what to pray. Help me to know how to pray, right? You want to think about what are ways you can be praying more to this person, the Holy Spirit that sometimes we might not always consider, right? God, the Father, thank you. You are sovereign. God, the Father, you are in control. God, the Father, you love me so much. You sent Jesus. Jesus, thank you. You're the one that died on the cross for my sins. Jesus, you're the one interceding for me in heaven right now. Jesus, you're the one that's going to make all justice right, right? He's the one that's going to come back and bring justice. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're in my life right now. Thank you that you give me wisdom and guidance and protection and that you're going to help me overcome sin as I keep asking you to empower my life. You see how that works? Those are some things you can pray to the Trinity. All right, what is a proper attitude in prayer? Well, we've talked a lot about faith and it does say that we need to pray with faith, that that's important. James 1, 6 says to ask in faith, to believe God is good and God wants to listen to us and engage in our life. And so we need to have faith without doubting that God will do, this is how I do it, faith without doubting that God will do what is best for us and what brings him glory. So it's not faith, God, you're going to do this because I'm claiming it. It's God, you're going to do what is in your will and what is best for your glory. I'm going to pray confidently in that. Does that make sense, the difference? That's encompassing the whole counsel of God. Next, we've talked about this multiple times, but we're asking God to work only in accordance with his will. The more time a Christian spends communicating with God, the more they will start asking for things according to God's will. Even Jesus said in Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, he said, Not my will, but yours be done. And First John 5, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So how do we know what God's will is? Because we're supposed to pray according to his will. That's the clearest thing we know about prayer. So how do we know if we're praying according to God's will? Definitely we won't know his will without being in the word of God. And if we don't know God's will, pray for him to reveal his will. Show me your will in the scriptures. Next, anything in our lives that displeases God will hinder our prayers sin separates us from god being able to have right fellowship with us we see that in psalm 66 18 proverbs 15 29 and first peter 3 12 that when we sin the first thing god urges us to do is ask for forgiveness then then we can engage with him in prayer when we confess our sin our relationship is restored and god hears the prayers of those who live in obedience to him So prayer and holy living go together. Not perfection, but trying to continue to walk with Jesus. Next, we pray with humility. We do not know what is best. So we must pray with surrender of all that we ask. We're allowed to pray earnestly, it says in the Bible. Pray earnestly. That means you can cry out to the Lord. This is where your strength can come in. I am praying for this. My heart is in this. I really want this. I want my children to be saved, my grandchildren to be saved, right? You're praying earnestly, but you're not claiming they will be saved. You're saying, I am praying earnestly. This is my great heart, Lord. And Lord, I know your heart is that all people come to know you. So I want to pray, Lord, that they come to know you. People need to cry out to God for God to deliver them. And so what we can pray is, God, I pray they would cry out to you. Because what I do know is if they cry out to you, you will deliver them. That's the promise. If they cry out, if they surrender, if they repent, God will forgive. God will change their hearts. So what we're praying is, God, please change their hearts. Please unveil their eyes. Please humble their heart of stone. Because I know... The promise is if they cry out to you, you will heal them. If you, you they, it, Spiritually, they will, they will change. Sometimes we take a proverb, which are wise sayings, right? And we try to claim them too. And one that's popular for parents is the verse that says, train a children in the way they will go. When they're old, they will not depart from it. And so I trained my kids. I raised them in the word of God. They went to church. So I know even though they've stopped walking with you or they've turned on you, God, I know but what's that? That's saying, because I trained them, because I taught them, because I was faithful to them. It doesn't mean they ever had a heart change. So we can't take these verses and Proverbs and claim them as promises. So I would just say salvation doesn't work that way. I don't think we can claim that somebody's going to come to Christ. Now, it is interesting, and we will talk in a few weeks, that there is something about, there talks about how God's favor will be on, on our children and their children if we're in the body of Christ, and that Somehow more people do seem to be saved as they're in Christian households and as we pray. But it's still not a promise that all the generations under us will follow Jesus. Sometimes (laughs) God does ask us to wait. And sometimes it's because he wants to redirect our prayer or focus. So we get fixated on waiting for this one thing. You might want to say, God, are you redirecting me to focus on something else? So your time of waiting should not be like, I'm doing nothing because he hasn't answered that prayer yet. It's what should my focus be in this time of waiting? That helps in your time of waiting, right? You're waiting for a job. You don't have a job. You're just sitting on the couch. No, you're still supposed to be using your time as you're waiting for, to find a job, right? Things like that. But also maybe now is not the time of answered prayer. You know, an example I give um, to young people is, you know, here I've been walking with Jesus my lo- whole life. I turned 30 years old and I'm still single. And I remember exactly where I was sitting in my morning quiet time the day I turned 30. And I said, okay, God, I don't understand. Every guy I've had a crush on from age 20 to 30 have either been missionaries or pastors. Why? Why can't couldn't I have married any of them in my 20s? Like, what is this? Why am I still single? And again, I, I heard this voice of God just kind of say to me, Can you believe I love you in your singleness? I'm not withholding something good for you. It's not better on the other side that I'm withholding something good for you that you are supposed to have right now. That the best way I could love you is for you to be single. And I look back now, having married a wonderful man and have two wonderful children, and I don't say, man, I wish I would have met Matt in my 20s. Because I look at my 20s and 30s and how I got to serve the Lord in all these countries and seen so many people come to Christ. And I thought... You're right, Lord. Like, you used me and loved me the best you could, even though all I wanted was to be married, right? Why are you withholding that good thing from me? I'm not withholding that good thing from you. I'm blessing you in a way you don't even understand. You see? But I waited, and I waited to almost 36 to get married. Last, we want to praise and have thanksgiving in our prayers. In Philippians 4, 6, says, In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. Sometimes we're asking for all these requests and we're not thanking God for anything else in our life, right? We're praying because it feels like doomsday around us. And we need to be able to say thank you for certain things in our life. And so you want to think about how Thanksgiving can increase your trust and gratitude to the Lord. Next, um, I want to briefly talk about fasting. Prayer is often connected to fasting. Many times in the Bible, if you were to study fasting, it's connected to prayer. And normally it's when you have an intense supplication, like, like, Lord, I'm, I'm praying for this. So you can fast for the salvation of your children, fast for the health of somebody, time of mourning, time of repentance, seeking the Lord's guidance before you take a position of something. So what does fasting do? It increases your humility and dependence on God, right? You're not taking in sustenance. And I'm, I'm one of the advocates of, I don't think uh, fasting from social media counts. <laughs> like, I think biblical fasting means food as much as you can, depending on your health issues. But there is something about trusting God for your sustenance and how food, food, you get hangry, right? Food, food decreases and you get weak. And so you have to depend on the Lord way more when you're physically fasting from food. It increases self-discipline. And this actually helps us refrain from sin. Fasting deeply helps you refrain from sin. It actually heightens your spiritual and mental awareness. You will be able to see what is right and wrong in a heightened way. And it expresses urgency in your prayers. And then next is just, we are to pray in private. We read that at the beginning of our time together. And there's just something about one-on-one prayer that can bond us and give us peace that passes all understanding. It's where we're silent. We listen before the Lord, where he says, be still and know that I'm God, right? Be still in your prayer room and know that I am God. We are supposed to pray with others, though. I I know some of my favorite times when I was single, it's been harder now with little kids, was going to prayer meetings and seeing that somebody's going to pray something. I'm like, oh, I was just going to pray that. Or, oh, wow, I needed prayer for that. And how did they know? And and it just increases your faith to pray together in an actual prayer meeting and to see how God guides your time together. That's beautiful but what we need to be careful is not assume that when more people are gathered the prayer means more okay because remember what did jesus say before he taught the prayer he said go into your closet right and so what happens is people misuse matthew 18 19 through 20. this is what they say oh we need a million people praying and then you'll be healed right we need a million people praying and then they'll be saved because they take this out of context, Matthew 18, 19, 20 says, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, what's the problem with that? Doesn't that contradict what Jesus said in Matthew 6 that you're supposed to pray in your closet? So is he not with you in your closet? (laughs) Right? There's a little contradiction here, right? So what does it really mean? Well, here's the context. What's the context of this verse? The context is Matthew 18, 15, seventeen. Go before it. And this is how the church is supposed to deal with sin or church discipline. What? What does that have to do with two or three or more being together, right? So this verse says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, yay, you've won them over. But if they don't listen, oh, look, take one or two others along. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of what? Two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. So verse 18 is giving us assurance that when this process is followed, that God says, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. See how people just take verses out of context? Look, Listen to what this is after, right? This is after church discipline, people, right? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. And then verse 19 and 20 says this, Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, this is about resolving conflict in the church. Lord, we're supposed to be unified. We need unity among these Christians, among these believers, among these co-workers, Says, if ask for it, and it will be done by them, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. God is with us as we try to resolve conflict. God is with us as we try to engage in biblical church discipline. God is with us to reconcile and restore people in the church. So the context has to do with church discipline and the wayward sinner. And so in verse 16, the principle is about two or three witnesses making an accusation that they have sinned, that they they need to confess. And this is where James 5.16 comes in. This is an individual person. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So you can't say that more people makes the prayer more effective. So we have one last one, and then we're done. What does confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that we may be healed mean in James 5.16? Because again, sometimes people say, hey, if we pray for another, we will be healed. And they're taking, they just chopped off the first part of the verse, right? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. So what is it? It's healing from your sin. It doesn't say, and you'll be healed from all your physical ailments. It doesn't say confess your sins and you'll be healed from all your physical ailments, right? It says confess your sins and you'll be healed from all the pain and grief and what affects you because of your sin. So part of being healed has to do with confessing sin, but sin does affect us physically, right? People can get depressed and suicidal because of their sin. They even say that there could be physical ailments in your body because of your sin, right? Sin affects you emotionally. It affects you relationally and it affects you spiritually. But you cannot say that because we all are going to keep having ailments and one day die from some ailment, that it is because we have sinned. Now, we are broken bodies because of sin in the world, but we did not get cancer. We did not get pneumonia that's going to kill us in the hospital because i did a particular sin and if i confess that sin i will be healed from pneumonia or cancer some example of sins we hold on to that can affect us fear fear drastically i mean you think of how much anxiety people have and that's fear and i'm not saying all anxiety is sin but anxiety can really affect your body and we need to figure out how can god help us with our anxiety and our fear and our worry Unforgiveness can lead to bitterness, and bitterness leads to death. So we have to believe that, confess that, or secret addiction, because then we're not living in community and we can live in darkness. So let's acknowledge true suffering and sickness presents unique challenges. And James does give advice for physical sickness, okay? And this is what he says, are any of you suffering hardship? So that's life hardship. You should pray. And are any of you sick? So now he's talking physically sick. You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil. Look at this, in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Okay, so that can also, excuse me, seem like a magic formula of I just need the elders to come, anoint me with some oil and I will be healed. But I do think we just need to be a little careful of that verse and to still ask God to heal us. And he may want to heal. We've seen many miracles, right? Some of you that are nurses might've seen some miracles in your day in the hospitals and stuff. Here's the thing we have to hold on. God wants us to be healed. Okay. But there's not a promise. We will fully be physically healed or emotionally healed or mentally healed until we're in heaven. So God is a God of healing and God wants to be healed and God does heal. And there are miracles today, but we need to remember we will fully be restored in heaven. And so we must trust God that if not all of our ailments are not healed on this side of heaven, he will still give us a perfectly new body that will never, ever fail again. And that is our hope right and so we can ask people to pray for us in physical situations and we do i see that in our group and we should but we're going to trust god to perfectly heal us in heaven there's something about admitting your sin in public that helps reduce the power of sin it's not like how you go to a priest and then they forgive you. I don't forgive you if you admit your sin to me, but it helps you to be like, okay, I want accountability. I want to change. Because there's a lot of times we keep going to God and confessing our sin and nothing changes because it's when we bring it in with a trusted person that there's a real accountability to help us want to, to really change and work on it. Or someone can hold you accountable to grow in that area. Hey, I've been struggling with this sin. Can I tell you about it to help hold me accountable? Because um, it's a real struggle in my life. Well, I don't think it means we have to confess our sin in a large group, but it does also say in other verses that we need to live in the light as he is in the light. And so we can't hide in the darkness. So our sins can't be hidden. So if you really want to live in the light, I think part of that is being vulnerable with at least one trusted person that you know will, not the person that won't care, (laughs) the person that will actually help you biblically, you know. So there's something about confessing to uh, trust a trusted person that helps you overcome your sin. They have to be a believer. Yeah. And they're going to help hold you. Would you help hold me? Account- I'm not just confessing it to get it off my shoulder. I'm confessing it because I want to grow in this area. I want freedom in this area. I want to live in community so that I can have victory in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a, a reason it's good to have an accounting person for anything like, oh, this week I need to work on loving my children. This week I got to work on loving my spouse. Like, so there could be something, you know, that's really hard to do. And when you have an accountability person, they can it just helps you to know more than just the conscience, you know, that I'm going to have to report back to my friend how I did in this area. Well, let me pray for us. <sighs> Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us this ability to pray to you, that, that we can directly pray to you because of our mediator, Jesus. Thank you that you have the Holy Spirit that also intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray for ourselves or others. Thank you that you've given us this way of communicating with you because you are a personal God. You're not distant, but you want to have this relationship with us. I pray that we would trust you, God, no matter the circumstances in our lives or the lives around us, that as we trust you, God, we would increase in our faith, that it would give us hope knowing that there is an eternity that we will get to be with you and we will better understand all that happened on earth. And God, may we just have joy in your presence. May we seek your face, God, and have joy in your presence. Mm -hmm. That prayer would not be just request after request, but God, that prayer would be presence with you. And so, Lord, fill our souls with a hunger for prayer that we would want to spend more time with you. In your name we pray, amen. Mm